episode 191 of The Call Room. Uh, I'm your host, David Griffiths. Very exciting to welcome you all onto the podcast version of today's event. Um, this was a really special one that we recorded live at Bidlux, as you'll hear a few times during the podcast, a couple of weeks ago with Matt from Boat Rocker Brewing here in Melbourne. Um, this is a brewery that we've been trying to get on the show for well, almost 200 episodes. We got a sneaky little peek at them uh, in our Black Box episode, but was so, so excited to actually be able to sit down for, well, a couple of hours in the live version at Beerlux uh, to chat with Matt about some amazing barrel-age beers, uh, but also just to hear the story of one of the breweries which is most associated with the rise of craft beer here in Melbourne uh, and just to hear their story in long form. Uh, I hope you're really going to enjoy it. It's um, a very special episode. Look, we love getting together with friends. Uh, we do it all the time. We're catching up tonight as I record this uh, with co-conspirators again at Pinnock Beer and Wine. But we have another live event coming up, which I really hope if you're in the northwest of Melbourne, you'll be able to get along to. And that's on the afternoon of Saturday, the 19th of August, uh, where we're going to be sitting down with Kurt from Deeds Brewing to drink through the journey. Now, I reckon most people in Melbourne, most people in craft beer in Australia know the beers that make up the journey series for amazing barrel-aged stouts. Uh, kicking off with Once More Into the Fray, a beer that changed the scene down here. So look, get onto our socials, get onto our Shopify and grab a ticket to come along to that. We've tried to make it as cheap as possible uh, to come along and I have no doubt that people uh, over the bar at the Flemken Bowls Club will find plenty of ways to support uh, the Bowls Club and buy a few more beers once you're there with your friends. Look, we've got other online events coming up soon as well. We've got Bowden Brewing from South Australia. We've got Seeker from New South Wales coming up in September. And look, if you're not already following us on Facebook and Instagram, now was an excellent time to do so, as well as liking the podcast uh, and making sure that you subscribe. Uh, that way you won't miss out on what is going to be a very special event that I'm in the process of planning at the moment. Our five-year anniversary as a podcast should coincide, I hope, perfectly with 200 episodes of podcasting. Um, it's unbelievable to me that we've been around for that long. And so we're going to have a very special live event uh, at a very special friendly Melbourne brewery to celebrate that. Um, it's sometimes that makes it sound like I don't know what's coming up. I do. I've even seen the list of beers that this brewery is going to have on that night. Eight new beers. That's right. Eight new beers. It's going to be very special. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and you won't miss out on that news. And you'll be able to come along just like the crowd did uh, a couple of weeks ago to Beer Deluxe to hear from Matt from Boat Rocker. And let's go over to that show right now. Super excited tonight, not just to be joined by my guest, uh, but because of the quality of the beers and some really rare things we're going to be discussing tonight. Normally, when you're listening to this podcast, you have the opportunity to buy the beers and have them at home. That's most certainly not going to be the case tonight, because the kind of beers that we're having uh, tonight are essentially only going to be available if you have a massive cool room at a place like Beer Deluxe, uh, and if you have the capacity to store kegs away for six or seven years. Uh, the other way, of course, to get them is off the uh, Boat Rocker website, but let's not preempt things. Let's say, first and foremost, 
Matt Horton, welcome back to the Cool Room podcast. Thank you. It was uh, not, not so many weeks ago you were saying welcome to, so it's great to be back again uh, in a very short space of time. You, uh, you were excellent value when we were discussing the black box collaboration we did with Carwin Sellers. A little and bit that, hungover, perhaps. Yeah, I was going to say, you were, that was the day after Ramjet Day out at Boat Rocker. It uh, was, yes. You we, look in much finer fettle today, my ho- friend. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. Well, not, not often we have a, an evening of... Too many beers and uh, little, little sleep, definitely. Well, we're going to talk more about things like Ramjet as we go along tonight. But look, we've got some awesome beers to, to discuss along the way. But let's give people particularly a shout-out again to our friends in Fiji. They were our fourth host. They just got pipped by Ireland for where our listeners are coming from in yeah. uh, July. But well done, Fiji. But for people in Fiji and or Ireland orientate people to where Boat Rocker is and what it looks like if you walk in the front doors. Boat Rocker is a, a, a very small, small little place, small brewery. We've got two locations opposite the road uh, from each other. We're in southeast Melbourne, a little red shed uh, where the brewery was originally set up in 2012 and then we built the, the barrel room, which is a much prettier looking place with... Beautiful gates and, and uh, lots of barrels and looking with a nice copper still. Uh, built that in 2015. But um, we're in the middle of nowhere, realistically. It's a long say, way... South East Melbourne can mean a whole lot of things. That it's it's like a long way. D- d- don't, don't, you know, walk from Flinders Street Station to South Melbourne and think that you're going to be close. Not at all. You know, you need to get a 45-minute at least train on the Frankston line down to Morty Alex Station, get a five-minute... Uh, Uber ride or a taxi ride or ride your bike, uh, which will be another five minutes, maybe ten. Um, and then you're in an industrial precinct called Brayside, which has its own postcode, but it's, it is, uh, there's no population apart from the workers who go in and go out each day. Um, and we just happen to be one of them. We don't uh, do anything else but make beer and booze. And I reckon you must have been one of the first of the breweries to move out or to start up in that part of the world, but now there's a whole scene out there, isn't there? There are. Look, I think one of the early area uh, proponents were uh, Two Brothers. So they had a little brew pub um, a few years before we moved our brewery down there, and we were looking for places uh, where where to set up and where would you find. We initially looked at, at Brunswick. Um, and we looked at the, the place Brunswick where... Brunswick is just crying out for a brewery. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, the rents back then were just like, we, there's no way we could afford the rent. And that was you know, many, many years ago, 11 years ago. Uh, so we thought, well, where can we go? We just said further and further out, and then we reached Brayside. And then the rest was... The rest, there is, it is. History. The rest is history. We will, we will cover as we go along. Yeah. Um, we're going to get underway with the dis- discussion about the two stouts in a minute, but... On arrival here at Beer Deluxe tonight, the first beer that we got into our hands was the Monk Lager. Um, what should people have tasted for those who are really diligent and kept a little bit in their glasses? What are they tasting now with the Monk? Look, this is our little ode to uh, German lagers, um, Monk, Munk. Uh, oh, I, I didn't know what to do with the umlauts. Yeah, so, so it's, uh, not many people do, and they often use them incorrectly when, when they're... Uh, uh, using them on, on words, but um, are you referring to Motley Crue, the band? And yeah, if you want to, um, if you want to use this early opportunity to start a fight with Nikki Six or someone yeah, like that, um, feel free. We have made really good reference. We made a beer uh, during lockdown called Holy Diver, with inappropriate umlaut placement um, on every every uh, every vowel possible. 
I think you and I are enjoying the heavy metal jokes. I'm not sure whether yeah. anyone else in the room is, but no, no, no. I'm, I'm happy to do this all night. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so it's one of those things where we just go, it's, it's I guess, taking, taking the mickey a little bit, but uh, Munchen Monk uh, is named after a monk, the Benedictine monks who founded the city back in the 1500s, uh, our little ode to a, a simple Bavarian lager, um, which is really four ingredients only, like most, most beers. Gives um, me an opportunity to say Reinheitsgebot. Reinheitsgebot of 1516, absolutely. It adheres to that without a doubt. Uh, you should get some nice little hop aroma on the nose, but it's all about the simple malts. Easy, clean drinking. It's a nice palate wetter, definitely. Leading you into what's going to come. So it's not one to think about, it's one to drink. Absolutely. Look, uh, the team from Beer Deluxe in particular love the story of this beer. How did this beer start out its life? So we were asked uh, by Beer Deluxe to make them a, a, a beer uh, that was called Kellier, which was uh, a, a Keller beer, an unfiltered lager. Um, so we thought we'll come up with it. They, they chose the name Kellier, um, and it was just a nice, easy, sessionable, approachable beer. Uh, it's had life as well as local lager uh, thrown in there also, and then we came back to, to Monk. We couldn't go to market with Kellier, even though it was brilliant for, for Beer Deluxe, but uh, for, for the can we thought, well, let's stick with something a bit more traditional. So you went from one side of the religious equation to the other, we hey. go, with the, go <laughs> exactly. with the monk side. I back the decision, that's very sensible. Um, we seem to have a lot of lagers at the moment in the Australian market. Um, is there a particular reason why you think that both, you know, Hellas and Munich, you know, are there sort of reasons why they're popping up? I think a lot of it's driven perhaps by brewers. Uh, and maybe the beer drinker as well. With brewers, as much as they make the hazies and the big lactose-infused XYZ beers, uh, it could be a hazy or a stout or a dessert beer, whatever it's going to be, brewers, at the end of a brewing day, really love to have something that they can just slake the thirst, enjoy for its simplicity and not for its complexity. And I think maybe the brewer and the drinker are, are now aligning a little bit. Maybe the brewers are hoping a bit too much that the, the drinker is there, um, and there's maybe a little bit too much of the, you know, let's make a lager, let's do this. Um, but there's one of those beautiful things about a beer that is there's absolutely nowhere to hide with one of these styles of beer. Absolutely. Beers. So you just have to make a, it well enough to be drinkable, uh, and the, the best ones will succeed and, and be amazing. It's a brewer's beer, as we like to describe these Very sort of lagers. So. Um, I also like in there the sort of the imputational on the way that um, brewers only start drinking after they've finished work. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but in some of our <laughs> socials this week, we've, we've seen evidence that might suggest the, the opposite of that, but um, in joke there that I won't explain any further. But good to know you only I start won't ask any more questions. Ab absolutely <laughs> right. Look, let's move on to the two stouts that we have before us uh, tonight. It's uh, a really interesting opportunity to have both the original stout and the nitro chock stout. So um, for everyone in the room, let's make sure that you've got the right ones in your hands. How can we tell the difference if we've got them muddled up? Uh, very good question. So uh, the head has subsided a little bit, um, and I would suggest the best way to smell test would be to smell. Uh, if you can smell chocolate, which should be quite pronounced. Um, this is a, this that, is a that test of your host, way. isn't it? Visually, when they first arrived, uh, the bubbles were bigger, uh, and the nitro bubbles were smaller, and a much finer, denser head. And you can probably still see the remaining head on the, the nitro stout 
is still quite dense, albeit smaller, um, whereas the stout is starting to lose some of its, its initial head. So please, take us through the stout. What should we be tasting once so we put this in our mouths? At the brewery, at the brewery we call it plain old stout, um, which is really a, an English-style oatmeal stout, um, halfway between oatmeal and, and FX foreign extra stout. Not quite bitter enough for that or big enough in alcohol, uh, but then it also has um, maybe a little bit more roastiness uh, and bitterness than a traditional oatmeal stout, maybe more alcohol. But it, for us, it's just a... An everyday stout. Uh, we, we love dark beers, malt, roast capacity, uh, what you get out of a stout and what goes in. The shelf life of a stout is incredible um, compared to hoppy beers because this is, it has hops but it's not driven by hops, uh, it's driven by malt and that's something that I think that hopefully the, the beer drinker is starting to appreciate malt character uh, and where that can go and I think today we're going to see a whole range of different beers that exemplify that and particularly the last beer uh, with the barley wine but for stout We'll get back to the, the topic at hand. Um, English stout, so we have a, a house yeast called 007, which is appropriate. Uh, it's an English-style ale liquid yeast that we get in. Um, we culture for our own, um, get that from uh, major yeast providers, uh, growers, I should say, effectively. Uh, and Major we... yeast providers might be our first T-shirt of the night <laughs> for anyone who wants to walk down the street with that on their T-shirt. Um, and then we use uh, a New Zealand malt with a, a good malt base. Uh, in an ideal world, English malt, which is incredibly flavourful and, and amazing to use as a brewer, is outrageously expensive with the exchange rate plus shipping costs and everything else. So we go to the next best malt, which is from New Zealand, uh, a company called Gladfield, and that makes up the, the bulk of it. We do use English crystal malts and specialty malts. So um, just, we, we often toss around terms like malts, but for people who are new to the craft beer scene, what grains are we actually talking about and what happens to them before they get to, to you? Uh, so malt, when the barley is picked at harvest, they get put into a, a, taken to a maltster and they will effectively germinate all the, the malt, all the barley grains to differing levels and then they'll roast them at different temperatures. Base malt is, is roasted at a lower temperature um, with minimal germination. And germination allows uh, basically the, the uh, energy centre of that little grain to produce sugars um, and how you toast it and roast it uh, will give different flavours. Be it crystal malt, which is allowed to germinate for longer and produce more sugars, it produces a sweet crystallised malt when you roast it at high temperatures. So there's so many things going into malt that I think just get overlooked. Um, it's all often about hop and big punchy aromas and flavours. But... Uh, and then you have roast malt, which makes it black and tastes bitter, um, much like an espresso coffee. Um, and that's probably one of the defining characteristics of this plain old stout is there's a little bit of roastiness there, there's some malt sweetness, um, and it just should be like having a, I don't know, like a, a long black, but in a, in a beer form. And you touched there on the fact that oatmeal stouts, is there oatmeal, oatmeal in this one as well? There is oatmeal, so we use rolled, uh, rolled oats just to provide a smooth, silky texture on the palate. Um, and it's one thing that's important, I think, with all dark beers, um, they probably should be drunk at an elevated temperature, ideally 8 to 12 degrees Celsius. It just allows everything just to come up and showcase the malt profile. Um, to, the colder the beer is, the more bitter it becomes um, and the more unbalanced it is. So it's always good to have a beer. I think this has probably hit a really nice temperature, um, but it'll drink well for the next hour. Well, I don't think it's going to last that long. It won't that last that long, <laughs> no, definitely not. 
Uh, you, you've spoken there and touched on the fact that there's a whole lot of different approaches to stouts, uh, and, and your approach, this one in particular. Are there stouts from overseas that you were inspired by? Tell us a little bit about your beer drinking story. Look, many, many, many beers inspire me, without a doubt, and I've, I've spent too many years thinking about uh, travelling overseas and, and drinking all the beers that um, my, my first memory of, of really was a, a TV show in uh, 2000, not 2000, in the 19... That's your first... 80s, your, but my first so trip was in my first trip was in the 2000... Sorry, no, 1998. What am I talking about? That, that, sounds, that sounds better. I was worried yeah. that your first memory was perhaps indicative no, no, of what no, happens no. with too many beers. Well, when I was about 15 years old, there was a, a beer show called The Beer Hunter on SBS that was absolutely amazing to watch. And as a 15-year-old, I wasn't really allowed to drink beer apart from having a, a sip from my father's uh, bottle of beer or end of a, end of a stubby. And I started actually understanding a little bit more about the, the societal impacts of beer I loved the labels. I collected. I was a massive beer nerd, if there's such a thing back then. Uh, collecting beer cans and, and bottles and putting them. The artwork was amazing, um, and it was really quite fascinating. It made me really want to go and travel through Europe, uh, drinking beer. Um, I was I was hooked at a very early age. Um, then all you had to do was you know get a job and save up some dollars and do all those sorts of things. Uh, absolutely, too. I did that for for a number of years and then uh, backpacked and I had a little pocket guide to beer from Michael Jackson and that was my guidebook uh, for a year travelling through Europe, drinking beer, going to breweries and, and pubs. Um, that was a, an amazing year. It was fantastic. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds absolutely fantastic. We'll, yeah. we'll touch on a few different styles that you experienced in that journey, but. Um, were there stouts in particular that you still remember from that experience? From the UK, I think hand-pumped uh, stout was absolutely incredible, to name a particular style. I think there was um, uh, an imperial stout uh, from the UK. Um, and Courage had a... Back in the, back in the day, um, had an amazing stout. And then there's been Cooper's stout. As, like, they used to have a vintage stout as well, uh, uh, more, more local, but the Cooper's vintage stout was absolutely incredible. And, again, heavily inspired by the UK. Um, that was very much the whole, the whole Cooper's uh, portfolio of, of beers. Um, and then there are American stouts, barrel-aged uh, beauties like there's a Founders on tap. Um, 2016. 2016. That's incredible. So I'll, I'll probably will have a little bit of that before I go home. Um, <laughs> But there's an amazing range of, of, uh, of stouts in the world. Um, Goose Island, back in the day, uh, with their um, incredible bourbon barrel-aged stout, um, all, all inspired, all, all stuck in there somewhere. Absolutely. And, to my head. And <laughs> luckily for Melbourne, you actually came back from your travels through all of these lands. And very, very, the very lucky. Those, yes. So we, the beers we're tasting tonight really do encompass a whole suite of the kinds of beers you're just describing there. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this one, I guess, is interesting because it's in your core range and we talk to a very wide range of breweries. Some don't have any core range at all. Some focus on a core range with a very limited run of, of limiteds. Um, has this one always been in the core range and how important is a stout in the core range? Uh, it hasn't always been in the core range, but it is incredibly important for us. Uh, Mainly because there aren't many breweries who do core range stouts, um, with the exception of the, the big players. Uh, few breweries that are craft have a, a, an all year round stout. Um, and there was a, 
a gentleman called uh, Miro Bellini, who used to be on the, the Good Be Week committee. Um, I, think, I think many listeners and or people in the room will know Miro, yes. And Shout many, many Miro. years ago, he pointed out that Brooklyn, when he was working for Brooklyn Brewery, their, one of their, their biggest sellers was out of, you know, in, in winter was a lager. And it flipped it on its head, the whole concept of, well, everyone likes to drink stout mm. at some stage. And why not through summer? Um, and same with the lager in winter. And, and it really got us thinking, well, let's just push stout and have it available, have it available all year round uh, rather than just make it a seasonal winter release. Mm. Just keep on making it. And it, and it worked really, really well. Um, it, it's now ranged nationally through Dan Murphy's, which helps a lot uh, pay the bills. But punters like it at the pub on a pint. Um, and it, it's a base that you can do anything and I think you can see that with the next beer that's mm. side by side with it. You can do a lot of things with a stout uh, that just can take it to a... It can absorb a lot of things uh, in terms of flavour profiling. Um, it's really... It's an, an exciting base to work with. And obviously part of what we do in the podcast is sort of document the times through which we live, which sounds a bit over the top, <clears> but given the podcast is five years old and it's been through COVID and these different times... We're now obviously seeing a tightening in the economy and people making different choices with their, with their beer purchasing. How, again, how does the core range fit into that? And have you seen a difference in what people are buying over the last six months or so? Let's Look, say? it's definitely... There are adjustments being made to people's expenditure. Um, we see things like... And you'll have some of them later on tonight. Uh, the, the Brewers' Creative Playground. Um, whilst... In maybe the last couple of years, you could easily uh, get them to market and have them, you know, purchased. I think these days, obviously, a $30 bottle of beer is an expensive outlay um, for anyone. And with belt tightening, or, uh, it's one of those things where I think it's, it's shrinking a little bit. So, yep. But beers like plain old stout uh, just do well because it is an affordable four-pack with plenty of flavour. Um, so we haven't really seen much change in, in those beers, um, but maybe some of the bigger, higher alcohol beers, we see some, some shrinking a little bit. And so I guess by sort of, by omission overall for your sort of monthly sales, these ones must be sort of going up as a percentage of the overall sales then? Yeah, I think when you, everything else is shrinking, so these are staying, they're going bigger because of that, without a doubt. Um, yeah, it's one of those things, and obviously excise does not help at all. Uh, the, 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 the taxation scale that is completely um, biased and unfair on, on every uh, beer and spirit producer. For anyone who has any contact, let's say, with politicians who might have capacity <laughs> to influence those things, I'm not looking at any one bearded gentleman in particular here, but, you know, you know who you are. That's one of those things. I, look, it exists and it is a level playing field. Everyone has to do with it, but I think it... Uh, the, the way the Americans describe excise is that it's a regressive tax and it actually brings down quality because it forces everyone to go for the lowest common denominator in, in terms of quality and pricing and everything else. And by reducing quality, it means that the consumer is getting a shitter product and that's not what craft brewers want. We get into to make the best product we can. So I think if it's going to be a, a detrimental product, uh, I think we need to try and change that but I don't know. It's, it's a we'll, we'll take that little clip out of the podcast and just send it to our local representatives <laughs> and see if they can do anything with it. 
With a petition, oh, I'm all for petitions. I've received a couple of rippers this week, but that's another story. Um, this is a good opportunity to get me out of that hole that I just dug for myself, to move on to the chocolate stout, hopefully while people have both next to each other. So again, let's stick our noses into the glasses of the chocolate stout. I mean, I guess there are a couple of things here which are obvious. This is a nitro version of it. It's a chocolate stout. There are two things in there that are obviously going to be different to the to the to previous beer, but can you talk us through again what we should be experiencing when we're tasting this? Absolutely. Um, this beer, and, and hats off again to Beer Deluxe for actually, we, Derek, uh, our sales rep, used to be a, a venue manager at Beer Deluxe, but he uh, had a chat when they wanted to have a, a, a winter special. So we thought, well, let's, let's create something within the boundaries, and we thought, well, let's make a chocolate stout. Let's do it on nitro for them, um, and it proves us a success that we didn't uh, to wider release. Uh, and it's one of those beers that I think just again, which is what I was saying earlier about stout, it can just absorb flavours and aromas. Um, and this has absolutely nothing fake in it, uh, for want of a better word. So it's a stout base. We use uh, organic Peruvian cacao nibs. Um, do you we, source those yourself? Do you go over no, and... No, we, we ring up Melbourne, Melbourne Nut Company and say, hey, can I have uh, some organic cacao nibs? Shout out to Melbourne Nut Company. They're going to be confused when I tag them in the, uh, the Instagram post. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've got, I think we've got a nut-based question. Well, I know nothing about stout ones, but I love that. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the I love it as a comment <laughs> rather than... I'm doing my best Virginia Trioli. Yeah, so, so the question, just for people who are listening on the podcast version, is literally probably the next question I was going to come to, but you, I, I love the fact that it's coming from the audience, which is how do you get those chocolate flavours in? At what point in the process do you actually add the chocolate flavours through? Okay, so we ferment the stout as a stout. Uh, once it's finished, we transfer to a bright tank and carbonate. We put through a little thing called a, a recirculation arm, which is a bit of bent stainless steel inside the tank. We have a separate uh, vessel where we put in cacao nibs uh, that is like a, a, a mesh vessel, um, albeit not uh, exposed to any air. We purge that, we put the cacao nibs in, we put vanilla beans in, uh, we recirculate the beer for uh, generally for 24 to 48 hours. Um, so the beer is recirculating through the beer um, and it's just natural alcohol extraction uh, taking the, the flavour and aroma out. We add the vanilla for sweetness. Not that it is making it any sweeter, but it's the perception of sweetness. It actually has a, a flavour profile that um, gives you the, the drink of the perception that you're drinking a sweet product. So there's no lactose at all in this beer. We, that was one of the requirements. We didn't want to have a lactose beer. We, Boat Rocker is a bit of an outlier. We don't really believe in lactose in beer. Um, one of these days we'll have a really impressive WWE-style cage match between the pro-lactose and the non-lactose people, but let's keep moving right ahead while I fantasise about my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, 48 hours uh, until we test it, make sure it tastes chocolatey enough, and does it taste chocolatey? And we sort of go, yep, that's good. So brewers do drink during the day, um, definitely. Uh, and... That's pretty much there, there's it. There's our 701 scoop. It may not be the biggest scoop we get tonight, but we're, <laughs> we're working on them. Uh, and that's as simple as that. Not as simple, but it's, it's, for us, it's just one of those processes that and it results in a nice chocolatey, uh, chocolatey stout. It's, it's a fantastic beer to drink. I think one of the things that perhaps people who are newer to beer, maybe even people who drink wine and are used to the idea of holding it up to the light, 
smelling it first and tasting it is, they don't appreciate just how important those other two elements are in approaching a beer. So that notion of the colour that we're seeing before us, but particularly the nose on this, yep. certainly <laughs> whets the appetite for the chocolate to come. Yeah, and if you get the word chocolate, and it's one of the things we've learned over many years, if you say something on a, on a label or a decal and it doesn't have it perceptible, then you, the consumer gets annoyed, which is... Fair enough, because you're using is, false is advertising. Is there a story to so. tell there? Is there one particular beer that perhaps you didn't add enough gummy worms to the gummy oh, worm? No, we, we, made a, we made a Kiwi IPA, which the consumer, we got a, a, a slightly annoyed, like, couldn't get any kiwi fruit. We'd use New Zealand hops instead of, so we just called it a Kiwi IPA, but they just assumed it was a Kiwi fruit yeah, I was IPA. Say, I was going to say, it's lucky so, it was Kiwi fruit and like yeah. someone came back and didn't say, you know, I was expecting more long-beaked bird flavour. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, disappointed on that front. So. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you just go, how you present yourself and how you're seen by the consumer can be two very, two very different things. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what's the future of this beer going to be? We know that the, the normal stout... The plain old stout is uh, going to be in the core range, is in the core range. Is this a one that comes back seasonally or is this uh, a migratory bird that we'll never see again? No, we will see it again because I think the, the barrel room, the bar place of, for Boat Rocker, it's one of our most popular beers throughout winter, definitely. Whether it will be around during summer, I'm not sure. The difficulty for us is canning a beer like this. Uh, nitro beers are notoriously difficult to can. Nitrogen uh, doesn't like staying in solution like CO2, so it, it escapes pretty quickly. So trying to find a way to get a nitro beer. There are ways to do it, but we've just got to work out and do some trials and make sure it can be achievable. But I think the chocolate flavour is really good. So it's watch, delicious. watch this space. For those playing at home with an industrial canning line in this instance, I'm sure, how do you get the nitro into a can or how do you get it into kegs? Well, we'd like to have the, the invention that Mr Guinness uh, has, which is the widget. Um, but what the current ones do is they have a, a liquid nitrogen dropper that will drop liquid nitrogen into the can, uh, fill it up and get the lid on bloody quickly. On bloody quickly. Um, and then you're meant to shake the can and upright the can. And it does give a similar effect, but if the consumer's not shaking it properly, doesn't do that properly... Uh, upright the can properly while they're pouring it, then the result is less than what they would get from a tap point. So it's Do one of those things. Do you ever hide in the shrubbery? I mean, there's some lovely shrubbery here at Beard Lux. Do you ever hide in the shrubbery at sort of bottle shops and things going, that's not how you shake the okay. can? Or no, I don't, but I'm, I'm probably... I, if we do do one, then I probably will, I'm <laughs> sure. Well, that's a good idea. Yes. There, some beers definitely do have stickers on them instructing, like a four-stage process of how to shake a can, which I can assure you, an 11-year-old boy is in the how to shake a can of Coke, as my yeah. son will. You know, Very so. true. Uh, talking about the, the importance there of the tap room and the feedback that you get, um, when you were originally thinking of setting up Boat Rocker, were you envisaging the tap room always as part of that process, or...? Just tell us sort of how the idea of what you were doing evolved. Yeah. First of all, why did you want to set up a brewery? I Really good question. Going back many, many years, I'd always been dreaming about beer from the age of 15 onwards uh, and how you could do it. I remember living in many houses going, oh, I wonder if I could put a brewery in there and do this and thinking about all these things, completely impractical and not realistic. Uh, and then, As opposed to opening a full-scale commercial brewery. So, yeah, yeah so. absolutely. <laughs> With, with no prior experience either. So it was one of those things where we, we, we saved our pennies. We did some, some contract brewing at a, a, a now-defunct brewery called Southern Bay. Um, 
we did a, a number of batches there. Um, thought, okay, let's let's start a brewery. A lot harder than we'd initially thought, but we we saved up what would now be seen as quite ridiculously small sum of money to start a brewery. Uh, just, but I think look, things were were different back then. There were a lot less breweries, so the the market is very different to uh, how it is now. Um, set up, found the shed down in Brayside, little red shed. You know, we bought an old second-hand brew house that was from a, a brewery that never existed uh, in Hobart, never never eventuated, I should say. Um, so the brewery that never existed sounds like the name of a French novel, but sure, <laughs> do, go on, do go on. <laughs> and then we bought some, uh, some stainless steel fermenters um, and ridiculously small number. We bought three fermenters and one bright tank, a uh, small little brewery, and they're all very small tanks, and then we just grew from there and... Oh, actually, hang on a sec. People do like our beer. Let's let's keep on going, and it just sort of grew from there. And what kinds of beers were you producing at the beginning? Uh, our very first beer that we put out, we actually even before we bought the stainless steel brewery, we bought uh, thirty red wine barrels and thirty white wine barrels from Yering Station uh, in the Yarra Valley, with the intention of doing um, wild ales. I, I wanted to make sour beer because that was one of the, my pivotal moments. Backpacking through Europe was sitting in Cantillon uh, when you could do you paid five euros for your own self-guided tour, um, <laughs> which is like thanks for the pleasure, uh, and you got a free glass of uh, of um, of lambic that a little old lady back then would shuffle along, pour me from a, a, a clay pitcher or ceramic pitcher into a glass, murky, flat, no head. I had no idea what to expect. I mean, I had. To be fair, I'd read Michael Jackson's, you know, this yeah, is something you had to have. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, you had no so, lonely planet for you. Yeah. And it was one of those moments when your palate and brain explode at the same time when you're having a, uh, a completely still um, Gers Lambic and it's just like, whoa, okay. And then your brain starts thinking about all these different flavour profiles, how it works, how they've done it. And then the idea was to, how hard can it be? I'll do it back in Australia. <laughs> how hard can it be really is one of the T-shirts we need to make because I think it's a large amount That's of a cool room story. Absolutely. You didn't answer the question that I asked there initially about did you have a tap room in mind, but I think that's a really good place to pause because where we're going to pick up the conversation uh, after our little break here at Beard Deluxe is uh, coming back to the Flanders Red, and perhaps that's an opportune sort of place to, uh, to go on for. Yeah. So. Everyone in the room can have a little bit of a break and I will press pause on the big red button. So here we are, we're back at Beer Deluxe with our rowdy, rowdy audience. <laughs> that could have gone one of two ways, but I was very happy with the way it went, so that's excellent. Uh, and I have a mental image just picking up from where we left off uh, of young, spotty-faced Matt with his Michael Jackson's beer guide uh, and his big backpack wandering around Europe. Pretty accurate assessment, actually. But uh, that was good fun. A lot of, a lot of enjoyment, enjoyment uh, seeing different beers, different towns, different cultures and how they appreciated beer, what they did with beer, how they respected it. Um, and I think that that was one of the major driving factors for us getting started up as a brewery because coming back to Australia and at the time in 1998 there were not many craft breweries around at all, uh, at all. and the beers that were on offer 
Well, really, you may have a, a stellar artois at the pub as something fancy, even though we've mm, brewed under Cronenberg. license. You know, or Cronenberg, yeah, absolutely. Or any of those other macro lagers that probably all came out of the same... So, same brewery in, in Australia, unfortunately, uh, or brewed under license. And it was one of those things where, you know, where were the pints of real ale? Where were the beautiful, crisp, hoppy, uh, you know, at the time, Yiva Pilsner, German-style, super hoppy, where were the, the Belgian uh, funky beers? Um, and there were bottle shops that were trying to import them, um, but often they would be sitting dusty on a shelf and be out of date uh, by six months and really a shadow of their former selves. So it was one of those things like, well, how do I do it? I have to make it myself. So home brewing, I've been home brewing through university days, uh, and it was one of those Rather things... Rather than studying, what were you supposed to be studying? Science at La Trobe University. Uh, how do I get cheap beer? I'll make it myself. Um, I'd help my brother do some home brewing in the early days, uh, and he started out with one good batch, and then each batch got progressively worse because he wasn't doing the right process of cleaning and sanitising, um, and I was determined to make a better beer than my brother, which I think to this day I, I, I do, but I think he gave up. He, just, he can now afford to buy beer, so doesn't need to make it. So I have this mental image of you. Uh, we left you over in Cantillon with your... Pewter jar, your your clay jug of flat uh, Cantillon. Did you go to Belgium before or after? And tell us what your first experience with a Flanders Red was. So my first experience with a Flanders Red was in Belgium on that backpacking tour, um, but I ha didn't actually get a chance to go to like the birthplace, I guess, uh, of Rosalie. Um, but I had a, a beautiful experience in a pub. Uh, in Bruges, um, drinking a, a, a Flanders Red uh, from a, a brewery called Rodenbach, and it blew my mind because it was fruity without being fruity. Uh, I could pick up dried fruits and cherries and fresh fruits and all these things, but it was just a, a sour beer that had been aged. Um, similar vein to Cantillon, but completely different at the same time, uh, using different malts, different, different yeast and bacteria. Uh, and it was, again, it, it really opened my eyes as to what beer could be, which was completely different to what I'd been drinking, um, the dregs from my father's stubby back in, back in Australia. The, uh, you've, you've made me laugh with that more than I should have. The 2018 Barrel Age Flanders Red then is what we've got in front of us. Yep. Again, please take us on a little guided tour right from how it should look in the light, what we should be getting on the nose for people here in the room with us, you know, go along with the tasting here and um, look. look and for a beer like this, I was really unsure. This is an amazingly well-sellered job by Beer Deluxe because they look after, they sell a lot of beers. Uh, when you make a keg of beer or make a beer and you put it into a keg and you send it to its home, um, normally it gets consumed pretty quickly. Uh, it doesn't often get sellered for nigh on five, six years, um, which is a pretty amazing feat for a business to hold onto kegs like Absolutely. that. Uh, and it... I'm amazed at how well this has held up. Um, it should hold up this well because it's effectively, it's a beer that has been oxidised in barrel for a number of years. It's a blended beer uh, that has wild yeast, albeit cultured from us back then um, and bought, purchased from overseas, but also bacteria. So the acidity should help it and uh, give it a long shelf life. Um, but the fruit notes on this are amazing. It really pick up some lovely uh, fresh like cherries, raspberries, um, fruit character. There's a little bit of that Brett Funk on the back note. Um, and it's 
I, don't, I, I love Brett, so people might pick up different levels of Britannomyces. Uh, so what explain I what up. that again for... Again. So Britannomyces is... Traditionally, it's a wild yeast. Uh, winemakers hate it, brewers love it. It provides a, a different profile to beer that is, uh, can be funky, complex. It can range from smelling like mice through to uh, leather to goat scrotum to, not that I even know, but that's one of the descriptors of what a Britannomyces is. I know, is I know the phrase damp goat, but I've never <laughs> so, heard goat scrotum before. Uh, but there's, so, there's our next T-shirt. Yeah. There's our, both our scoop and our We've T-shirt got, for the night. So it's one of those things where, I don't know, it's, it's, it just adds complexity to a product. And when you're combining it with dark malts, Britannomyces works wonders with dark malts. Uh, I think it converts some of the, the, the dark Belgian crystal malts into some of these fruit notes that you get and turns them quite bright and lively. And when you add the acid profile from the, the Pediococcus, which is a, a bacteria that is renowned for the slow activity but producing a nice rounded acidic profile, uh, it ends up being really quite delicious. It's one of those things where... It's really delicious. And so the question for the audience the is, is this where Belgian sours come from? Well, I guess this is where Belgian beers come from, but tell us the sort of the history of how these things... Oh, look, in, back in the day, all, all beer would have been Asian wood. Uh, they didn't have stainless steel, and the Belgians would be encouraging uh, different regions, different breweries would have their own specialities, uh, and this is definitely a take on a, a classic Belgian style called a, a Flanders Red Ale, uh, and it, it just it hits the hits the point. Um, it's one of those beers styles I think that is approachable on so many levels because of uh, not only. The, you get some malt character, but you get some fruit character. It's acidic, it's cleansing, it's complex. Uh, it, it probably wins over a glass of red wine, maybe not in the alcohol content, uh, but it wins because it's got carbonation. So you can completely strip uh, something fatty like nice duck uh, or a rich steak, something like that. The, the, um, the acidity and the complexity of the malt profile of the beer complements the, the Maillard reaction with a steak, like anything grilled. Uh, and that's where I think these beers just absolutely excel with food. And the Belgians are, might annoy some French people if they're in the audience, but the Belgians consider themselves the equal of the French when it comes to cuisine, and I pretty much agree with it. Uh, but they chose beer and the French chose wine, effectively. Maybe not as simple as that, but... Uh, and Just make sure that any French correspondence goes to Boat Rocker rather than the cool room. <laughs> they can take the argument up with me, definitely. But uh, the Belgian, that's where travelling through Belgium is an absolute delight because the, the food and the beer just go absolutely hand in hand. It's funny because you were talking about duck there as a food style to pair it with, and I love eating duck, but I was almost thinking some of those more Asian-style duck mm. dishes as well, and it's remarkable that a beer from one side of the world would pair so well with a completely different cuisine to what it would ever oh. have been intended for. Absolutely. But, and some star and ace character would, would work wonderfully with that. So, yeah. That's exactly... Getting me, getting me hungry here. So, so, yeah, we're, so, so just indulge Matt and I while we have our little <laughs> chat here about what, what we're going to cook with it. Um, you're absolutely right in talking about the way this beer has been sellered. We came down a couple of days ago to Beer Deluxe to make sure that this was going to be, you know, worth serving to people. Like, yeah. it wasn't clear, you can never tell when something's been in the keg for this long. Uh, how did it taste when it first went into the keg? And can you give people a bit of an idea how these beers ta- change over time? Absolutely. I- I'm going back a number of years. But you have a good memory back to 2009, <laughs> I believe. So. Yeah, yeah, very true. But this, this beer probably doesn't taste that far different from when it was first 
put into keg. I think there's been some development. The Britannomyces character, which is the that aroma profile of, of Brett, has uh, increased a little bit. Um, but it's actually remarkably bright and fruity and fresh, uh, which is testament, I guess, perhaps to the keg that we used, um, which is a style called key keg, which has an internal bladder with a... a, a a membrane, effectively, I think, which keeps uh, out internal oxygen. bladder with a membrane. There's another T-shirt. Yep. <laughs> um, but it, it keeps why out oxygen. No, why doesn't anyone buy our T-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's held up amazingly well. I'm really impressed well, with with the cellaring and also the the keg we put it into. And the beer to begin and the, with. The beer, obviously, obviously, the beer was delicious, uh, and it's still really drinkable, which is fantastic. Let's now move along a little bit. Hopefully people have still got the, uh, the glass of the, uh, the barrel-aged Flanders in front of them, but the jet stream. Yep. Should we have these alongside each other? I think you definitely and, should. And, uh, I can hear a murmuring in the room, <laughs> and, 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 and rightly so. So uh, I haven't tasted this one at all yet. So, um, Well, give us the very basics of what the jet stream is, but then let's talk about the components of it. So the, the basic of Jetstream, it all stemmed from a night after beer judging, coming back to Beer Deluxe when they had the, the opening to Good Beer Week. And as a beer judge, you had the ability in the first hour to get whatever you wanted. So I got Cantillon, and I think I got a, a Founders Imperial Stout. And then as you've been drinking beer all day, and it's just like, well, why not? And I poured... Uh, the stout into the Cantillon and thought I'll give it a go and see what it's like and it was delicious so then my brain started going well, we, we don't really have a at the time a Cantillon-esque beer so let's do a, a a sour stout so how do we do a sour stout and as brewers you always get told you shouldn't do roast malt and sour don't work so I was sort of determined to try and prove them a little bit wrong and there are some amazing uh, brewers in, in Belgium that do do, you know, there's a um, Tilken I think do a, a stout that's blended with a, a, one of their, their Gerzes um, and it's delicious. And I think the roast malt character, there's a little bit of sweet, it just has a different profile and it, it's completely different to a Flanders Red. That's one of those experiments that we did for uh, our membership group called the Admiralty um, and we thought, that's maybe make a bigger batch. It, this is one of those bits where I feel like I sort of need to say one of those, you know, don't try this at home kind of things for children because uh, the core room is very lucky. We do get to sell Cantillon to our subscribers and um, so very recently we've sold a whole lot of bottles of Cantillon to people. If for some reason you've got a bottle of Cantillon and don't quite appreciate what it is, don't go down to the bottle get some Guinness and have a crack at mixing this for yourself. It's like, you've actually got to know what you're doing, what proportions things get mixed with. Yeah, that was a drunken... My, my blend in the bar was definitely a bit of a why not. When you release it, it's got to be a lot more precise. Uh, we, did, we did multiple blends trying to work out, and there's a fine line between roastiness dominating the overall profile to having the Flanders Red being the dominant profile with a hint of darkness to it and I think that's sort of where we've we've reached at the moment. So for people who don't know what Ramjet is, probably unlikely to be anyone in the room, but just let's just take it through for people on the podcast version. What is that before it's added to the Flanders? So Ramjet is an imperial stout that we age in uh, a local distillery's whiskey casks called Starwood um, and it's just a, an imperial stout aged in whiskey barrels. 
Just uh, an imperial step aged in whiskey barrels like it had no sort of, you know, influence on the Melbourne beer scene or that's... That's the, the humble brag if ever I've heard one, my friend. Because the jet, you know, the Ramjet is a really important beer now in Melbourne's beer life. It is. Look, I think we've realised that. We, we cheekily, and it was purely why not? Because I got a little bit sick of, and I think today is IPA day, which hats off to IPAs and everything else. But I always, we joked about every day having a day. So we, the original reason behind it, we, we created a day called Ramjet Day. It's like every else is, everything else has got a day, so why, why can't Ramjet purely as a, as a tongue-in-cheek scenario? And Ramjet Day has become a thing. And it has become a thing, and it's actually been really popular, which is fantastic, where it's utterly ridiculous with too much Ramjet, too much food, uh, but a lot of fun. So, um, and it's I one feel of like you're things. the man to ask. Did talk about the scoops, the 739 scoop that might be. How much Ramjet is too much Ramjet? <laughs> oh... I don't, I've never consumed that much. I did have a, I had a pint once at a pub after I shouldn't have, when they, and they should never have served me a pint of Ramjet. But I think throughout the course of the night, which is six or seven hours, you, customers get maybe one litre of Ramjet of different vintages, plus cocktails, plus spirits and other things. But it's, you know, interspersed with rib, rib coating uh, stews and, and meats duck. and duck. Well, no duck yet, but I'll have a chat with Rob for next yeah, year and next see if we can get duck. some duck. I'd like to see ducks on a spit, like a nice one of those rotisserie walls that you see in, in France with ducks. and just, That would be lovely. But We're going down that rabbit hole or duck <laughs> hole again. But it's a, we yeah. must be getting hungry. <laughs> uh, and again, so now, in particular for the ramjet, it's now blended in a number of different ways, isn't it? So It is, and ramjet takes... Different forms. Uh, we do a Christmas version called Fat Santa. Uh, we do different variants. We've done fortifying, where we actually uh, got whiskey from Starwood, and every liter, every hundred liters of Ramjet, we we put thirty liters of whiskey in uh, to effectively fortify Ramjet to become an eighteen point something percent beast, um, which utterly ridiculous, but. Was that is bit. effectively fortified. Oh, it, it really is. And so it was delicious. But you can't have much. You have to share it. Because getting, getting through a half-litre bottle of 18.2% Ramjet is pretty, pretty good going. A absolutely. I guess one of the questions we asked all of the brewers when we were doing the black box interviews, uh, which was the collaboration we did with Carwin, lots of different sort of new innovative ideas, um, was, well, first of all, have you made this blend before, or is this the first time you've blended these ones in this fashion? We have made it once before, a different beer, different vintage uh, for our membership group. Um, but it's one of those things where Ramjet has a, a... It amazes me. I mean, we have a recipe and we stick to it each year. But the barrels from Starwood, they're always different vintages. But the quality of the, the Ramjet is very consistent, which is... Odd. Sometimes it varies in strength a little bit, but its flavour profile is very much, yeah, you know, like that as opposed to big, big dips. Um, but we know that you know, making a, a beer like the Flanders Red, because each year the, the Flanders House Red is, is different as well. So that's one of those things, I think. So, so I guess now that you're tasting this, is there anything you'd tweak about it, or anything you'd tweak about the process next year? Um, I'd probably put a bit more sugar in for carbonation. We we secondary ferment. Mm -hmm. uh, in bottle and keg, so I'd probably just up the carbonation a little bit. But I quite like low carb because I like my stouts with low carb. So 
It's one of those things. But yep. no, I, I think the roast and acid profile is probably quite balanced. Yeah, I, I would agree completely. You're getting both of those sort of sides of the coin in, in the beer that's before us. Again, take us back to, you know, when you're setting up the brewery, when you're thinking about where things are going to be going in your sort of brewing future. Is this what you envisaged making at the time? Or how do we get from those first beers that you were making? How does the journey progress from there? That's a really good question. I actually had little idea of... We, we never wanted to be a big brewery. We never wanted to take over the world with, you know, multi-million litres. Uh, that, that's not what we do. We want to try and create beers that we want to drink, which has always been our guiding ethos, is do we want to drink it? Uh, we investigated back in, in lockdown, should we do a seltzer? We bought every seltzer at Dan Murphy's and we all agreed that we hated every single one of them and we're not going to make a seltzer. So, uh, and we never have and we never will because we don't like... And I think we want to make beers that we're happy to, to present to people and show to people and I think that's one of the things that... Everything has to taste good, for, and we need to be able to drink it. So uh, I think that's been a guiding ethos. I probably never would have assumed or imagined this beer uh, back when we first started the brewery. But now that I drink it, I sort of go, made, we've always approached with a why not rather than a, a why. Um, so that's our sort of everything that's guided us. And to this day, rightly or wrongly, it's one of those things you go, well, well why not? I think we've got a question from Shannon up at the back of the room. So I might just repeat the question just for the podcast version. And it's a ripper question because, Jen, you've sort of taken to where I wanted to go, the fact that Boat Rocker is more than just a brewery. Uh, but in particular, there's a, a ramjet whiskey version. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of the story behind that for lucky people like Shannon that have been able to snaffle a bottle? Absolutely. Uh, the ramjet whiskey, that was the, the, the coffee uh, edition, which we distilled uh, coffee ramjet. Again, we had a distillery and it's like, why not? Um, give it a crack, we'll see if it, see if it works. And we put it into a whiskey barrel. Um, it was a, ex, a pair of barrel from memory, um, and it was delicious. And we have got another barrel with, uh, with Ramjet non-coffee edition uh, in cask still. That's been sitting um, for four years now. Um, but that might have another... It'll, it'll be coming out, but, yeah, shortly. Watch this space. No, look, some of the beers, we've always, again, with spirits as well, we know that if we've played around with making a spirit, trying to make a good spirit from a bad beer, you can't do it. Uh, the beer itself was, was fine. Um, there was some... Uh, I remember there was some green capsaicin character from the coffee, um, which you can... It gets into the, the coffee realm of things. There's a, a, an ingredient called capsaicin, which can give that green capsicum character. Um, arming and ahhing as to whether we actually liked it or disliked it, but there was, the beer itself was not bad per se, but it was more of a personal preference down to was it too green capsicum or was it um, which is why we also changed all our coffee beers ever since um, when you get a dark roast beer uh, a dark roast bean I should say um, you end up with less capsaicin character when they're lighter roasted and they're more you get more of that green bean character can lead to a different character, uh, which is where you get that green capsicum character, which we don't really like. Yeah, we've talked with uh, the head distiller at Sarwood um, about doing a fortified one again. Excuse me. Um, and 
They've said yes. We just have to do it and plan it. Uh, we did do a still dramjet, which was a, an uncarbonated one first. Absolute fatal, fatal mistake with, with releasing a product that was... Everyone assumed that it should be carbonated. Um, we wanted to try and be like a, a true fortified where you could put a cork in it, have some, put it back on the shelf okay. or in the fridge, uh, which... Uh, oh, brilliant. It'll taste delicious, but... I think one thing we've also seen, every beer that ages, the alcohol content becomes more integrated with the beer, uh, which is where you're saying you could add more whiskey to, to the final product. And you could, absolutely. Um, it would mean getting more, it'll be more expensive, unfortunately, because we're adding, uh, this is where the excise issue comes in, but we're adding whiskey to a beer, um, which to a percentage that takes it into another threshold, which is the spirits tax. Um, and then to get it up, even higher again, there's a balancing act between palate weight and alcohol content and whiskey flavour. So we'll do it again. And oh, it's a taxation question. I love this. Normally we <laughs> no, normally we indulge ourselves with local government planning chat here in the courtroom. <laughs> like genuinely, we constantly go down that rabbit hole. It's lovely to be dealing with federal tax law for a change. So the question just for the podcast listeners is, um, at what points do the various uh, percentages of alcohol trigger different taxation regimes? A very small amount. I think you can, you can add up to 0.2%, don't quote me on this, I'll need to check, 0.2% of the alcohol volume can be from other sources. Uh, whereas that's a really, really small amount. Um, and you get taxed to a different bracket immediately. Whereas if you're a winemaker and you're making a fortified uh, wine, you can add uh, wine spirit, grape spirit, and your excise is very different. But the wet tax, and it gets into a complicated realm of different taxation for different products, unfortunately. But it's a really small amount. So, And where we had effectively 30% of the volume of Dramjet was uh, whiskey at cask strength, which is 58.5%. So that's... But it worked really, really well. I, I love that question because it is so much one of those sort of cool room questions of everyone goes, gee, it must be fun to make just whatever weird, wacky, wild beer you want to make. But actually, you know, you've got your accountant on the phone, you've got all of these different sort of parameters, yeah. you've got to put something through Commercial before reality. you do the weird, yeah. wacky and wild... Uh, I think I saw a hand up at the back of the room there, or was I just... No, maybe I... Oh, they wanted cheese. <laughs> well, you know, that's another cool room tradition, is eating cheese while we're doing these things. I'm going to bring us full circle on this little portion of things before we put a little bow on it and um, refresh our glasses for our final session, but I think I tried to ask at the end of the first session here... Um, how important the tap room is in terms of uh, your feedback loop on how the beers you're making are received, tweaks you make. We've, just, we've done the discussion of opening up the little red shed. We've done some of those things now. What's it like now to walk into the brewery? What's it like to walk into the tap room and get that kind of feedback loop? Why is there a tap room? Yeah. There was a, a room, or room, a factory across the road for the brewery that... Um, for about six months, there were strange goings on. There were there were bulldozers. Uh, there were operations happening at all crazy hours. I'd be leaving work, and there were things were just 
not seeming right. Um, then the this, next one, one it morning, like we need to get the federal police rather than the well, tax agency involved. One morning, uh, there were 13 EPA cars out the front. Everything had been fenced off. Um, and I'm going, what has happened here? And there was an illegal waste sorting station uh, had happened, um, and that was in 2015, early 2015. And we thought, let's start a a barrel room. And this, this, this Nothing place, says EPA wastes to me like barrel room. Well, the, 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 the factory came up for lease, uh, and I'm thinking, surely this owner is going to want to get a good tenant in. Um, we've been here for a few years. We should be able to start a, a, a venue. They'd be happy. And thankfully, he'd been absolutely dudded by these uh, dodgy people. So he was very happy to have us come in uh, and set up a, a barrel room. Um, and we just did that. It was a lot simpler affair back, back in the day. A few barrels. We probably had maybe 100, 120 barrels, a cool room in the middle, some taps, uh, and we were just sort of, let's just pour beer and see if people come to us. And, and, and so with your science degree, you obviously hadn't made beer before. Had you run a hospo venue before? Or I'd was... worked in pubs, pouring beer, uh, my, my first, my first, uh, I did some, some venue managing. Managing is a very loose term. I, no, think. I understand. I just, There's no shame here. Uh, and it was one of those things where, um, yeah, I could pour a beer. How hard could it be? That's very difficult. Um, but a lot of fun. And setting a place up, getting it ready, seeing if punters will turn up. Um, they did. They liked the beers. And I think some of the things we did in the early days were beers like Flanders Reds and uh, we had a, a beer called Mitter, which is a Chardonnay barrel aged in um, uh, Berliner Weiss. Then we had Ramjet. We also had some approachable beers, but we also were talking about the area we lived in. Will they be into these ones? And we, we had a divide between the locals who would drink the pale ale, the IPA, and then the, the travellers who would spend their day getting out to us, which was not an easy task back in the day. There weren't that many other breweries to make a, a big tour of it, as there are now. And there's even a, a tour bus, I think, doing, mm. you know, a hop on, hop off between local breweries, which is amazing. Um, so getting the locals in, but then we spent time getting, uh, supporting local football clubs, cricket clubs, anything local, just to say, hey, here we are. But also, we, are, you know, we, we live in the area, we go, go to school, my kids do anyway. Um, so it was good to get that, that local involvement and get see, see it sort of grow, albeit incrementally, much like the business, really. Uh, I feel like, you know, we really need to emphasise the fact that, you know, we've sort of undersold how nice the venue is to be in because we've sort of described it as a bit of a shed somewhere. Um, I've been out to the venue. It's a fantastic place to be. If you're coming to Melbourne and you're a beer lover and you're listening to the podcast, you know, it's an experience to go out and have this really wide range of really high-end beers in a lovely environment to be in. Like, yeah, it's actually... Thank you. you know, it's more than a little red shed or more than just over the road from a little red shed. Yeah. Look, it's one of those things where I'm always very... I don't know, humble, I guess is the word, but it's one of those... I look at it, I'm always... Every time I go to work, I look at problems. There's toilets to be cleaned, there's, there's doors, always off, doors on hinges that need to be repaired. There's always problems. So I sort of think of it as a... OK, it's a, it's a workplace as opposed to a relaxation and enjoyment place, yeah. which is, and it is, because sometimes you look at it, particularly at night time when the, the orange glow from the lights and the barrels, it's a, it is actually very pretty. Um, a, yeah. uh, but also then I also go, oh shit, 
light bulbs out. I'm going to replace that. You know, there's always something to do, which well, is I'm, the nature of Well, I'm sure our work, friends but. from Fiji, I can hear them walking onto the plane over there in Fiji. They're going to land in Melbourne, and it is well, well, well worth a visit to come out. Thank I you. understand how you think about the world. I think about it the same way. <laughs> but it's important to actually talk about the fact it's a great space to be in. And, you know, as you say, part of a continuum now of great breweries out in the south Absolutely. And it's exciting seeing so many new amazing breweries with quality beers they're not just fly-by-nighters I think they they put their, their heart and soul into those little breweries and to see them do well and be, be there to this day is fantastic. Absolutely it is. We're going to have a little break here in the live show here at Beer Deluxe we're loving our beers, we're loving the fact they've got some amazing other beers on tap that we're going to try during the night we're going to uh, make sure that our glasses are clean and ready for the barley wine which is to come and uh, we're going to come back and talk barley wine and get the rest of the audience questions asked and um, make the most of our night here. Well, here we are. We're back at Beer Deluxe. We're with Matt Horton from Boat Rocker Brewing. The audience is getting rowdy. That's exactly what we like because it shows how much they love and are enjoying these beers. Audience, are you getting rowdy? I think it's actually less rowdy than they were before, but that's okay. That's a good sign. Um, We've got, talk about sort of rare beers that we're unlikely to ever have in a glass in front of us again. We've got something pretty special here, Matt. We've got the 2018 Banshee Barley Wine. Take us through it, please. So this is a classic English-style barley wine aged in styled whiskey barrels. Uh, It's without a doubt too cold, so... I, I've been cupping it, trying to keep it a little bit warm, bring it up to temperature. Uh, it's the nature of, you can't do anything about tap systems. Um, but once it comes up a little bit in temperature, everything sort of starts coming out with aroma, mouthfeel. Um, it's got some nice dried fruit character. To me, a barley wine, I had a, a most amazing experience when, again, Michael Jackson, thanks to him, uh, Thomas Hardy's Ale, which doesn't get produced anymore, unfortunately, which is a... Uh, an old brewery in the UK and they had a, a, an ale called Thomas Hardy's Ale which was um, an amazing barley wine but it was always recommended you could drink it uh, and it would last in bottle for 20, 30 years much like a, a, a Lambic will um, but this beer would eventually over time become more like a fortified and turn into Madeira qualities um, and that's one thing that I think obviously in a keg version maybe not going to happen but in a bottle uh, Bottles, crown seals, they're not airtight, so oxygen will slowly creep in and it'll slowly and gradually oxidise that beer and it'll become fortified. Uh, slowly going off and eventually it'll become vinegar in how many years, but uh, in the meantime, it's got to catch Somewhere in there is a sweet spot. Somewhere in there is a sweet spot. And I remember buying a bottle in 1998 of the vintage ale, Thomas Hardy's, vin- oh, Thomas Hardy's ale 1998 version, uh, vintage, and I put it aside left it at the folks place I came back to it in would have been crikey would have been about eight years later and it was absolutely mind-blowingly delicious um how had it changed because I was going to ask you the same question about yours in a minute but carbonation had dissipated it was virtually still uh but it had become as described like a a fortified um and what does that mean again you know for people of our generation being 49 51 years old we know what fortified wines taste like. Perhaps some of our younger audience members have never drunk fortified. And if you haven't, you should, uh, without a doubt. It is, uh, can be viscous and sweet. It can be 
uh, like eating a, a really, if you've ever had muscatels or a, a dried fruit, um, dried grapes, I should say, uh, intense fruit character, uh, a little bit, I don't know, earthy. Um, it's really hard to describe what a fortified is because there are so many different types of fortified wines. Um, even if you'd just, even if you'd just had a one of those little packs of sultanas, put into your lunchbox at school, oh, and perhaps you'd left them for the holidays, and then you'd come back to them. Oh, that's that is that is very much, and add some booze, and that is a that is a, a beautiful fortified. You can um, tell what I spend most of my day doing, which is cleaning out school lunchboxes oh, rather than yes. indulging in fine fortified yeah. wines. Oh, they were the first things I'd always eat. You can always perfect mouthful is one of those little flip top packs of sultanas. You can. And then you've got a mouthful for at least five minutes, as long as no one tries to scare you or make you <laughs> breathe in quickly, you're all right. First question would be just in terms of the colour. I know with a whole lot of wines, you know, traditionally they go sort of golden and darker over yeah. time. Is this the same colour as this would have been when it came it's, out? It's a similar-ish colour. We've just put uh, a beer called Barley Wine is Life. And interestingly... Uh, uh, interestingly, you're the, referencing the, one of the tattoos the, in the room. The, the gentleman over there said uh, Bali, as in B A L I. Uh, thought so, and our designer, who we said we're going to make a beer called Bali Wine is Life, his first design with the text came back as Bali Wine is Life. Um, until well, he says, Bali actually, it's, it's, it's Bali Life is Wine. So it's one of those, it's, it, is, uh, it is a little bit darker than when we first did it. Um, I think the appearance. Probably a little bit less bitterness, um, and we've done numerous iterations over the years with bourbon barrel aging, starwood barrel aging. The one thing that I think is more prevalent when it's younger is the bitterness is much higher, uh, and you aim for a little bit higher bitterness just so that it will age gracefully. Because I think a beer like this, my preference is to have it after a few years. Oh, you've, That's you've commercially, my next question, commercially that... not even remotely sensible, uh, yeah. but it's when it drinks best after a couple of years. Um, it, it just does, and I can't do anything about that, unfortunately. Uh, so you have to make it, and thankfully people like Beer Deluxe put it away for longer than two years. Uh, and, and keep it in excellent nick during absolutely. that time, because it's... all of these things, people, you know, again, for people who are new to craft beer... Don't expect that you can just chuck a couple of bottles of a barley wine in a box in the shed and it'll be good in five years. You've actually got to look after you, these things. Absolutely. Cellaring beer is an art, without a doubt. Uh, you've got to be attentive. You've got to make sure that you actually know what you're cellaring and the temperature and how it's controlled, how to look after it. There needs to be a degree of, I don't know, Finesse, but also you need to be a bit nitpicky on, on how things are, are looked after, without a doubt. And that's, you know, experience, because I, I remember a friend of mine subscribed to this wine subscription pack, and he got lots and lots of wines, and we had a, a session where we sat down with him one night, and he's going to open up all these beautiful wines, and he kept them on top of the heat event. Uh, yeah. As in is a, traditional in, a, as in many a, European countries. And so. every single one of them was absolutely Cooked. tragic, and... We were in hysterics and laughing, and he was in tears by the end of the night because he'd spent thousands, and they were all shot. And it's it's one of those things where <laughs> I really felt sorry for him, but God, it was funny. It's, <laughs> it's a really interesting to see out of all the people who I know in the room, which ones are laughing maniacally and which ones sort of feel a sense of empathy and tragedy for their fellow man. So it's a learning experience for me out of the people in the room. 
Um, we're going to get to audience questions in a minute. Shannon's going to come down here and be the first in line so that he can ask his uh, questions in person. So we'll get the audience to line up if you have an audience question so that you can do it on microphone. Um, I know that we had a chat about these sort of things on, uh, on our, our black box discussions, but our traditional call room question, and I think now you get our sort of shtick. We love those sort of behind-the-scenes stories. We get the, uh, the stories about, you know, I thought this would be easy, but it'd be hard. But what's the strangest thing you've seen in a call room? Obviously not a boat rocker. In those venues when you were young and starting out, what happened in those call rooms? Oh, look, honestly, most things I've seen in call rooms have not been exciting at all, or remotely funny. Tragic? The, tra tragic, the tragedy for me was when we, we built a, I wouldn't call it a call room, but it was call room panel for our initial 30 uh, or 60 barrels, and we thought, what, what could go wrong? And there was a, the bungs, we'd fermented in barrel, as we still do, but we hadn't put breather bungs in the, the barrels and the, the lambic style that we were trying to emulate, the yeast is incredibly active and the walls, the roof, everything was we covered with beer. We love an story. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very frustrating moment. And then the scary moment of, oh, crikey, what do we do if we've got everything is going to be contaminated with, uh, with these yeasts and bacteria? Um, but and, thankfully, and thankfully they're not. No, they weren't. We were, we were, which is part of the reason why we also built the barrel room. We wanted to isolate and separate from standard beer and keep a, a separate place for, for all the other barrel beers. I, again, I love those kind of stories because it all sort of looks like it's the craziest thing you could do, but there's actually a lot of method, uh, not just in a tax avoidance sense. But no, not at all. There's no tax avoidance at all, unfortunately. I wish we could, but there's, there's, no, there's no... I've thought about becoming a registered charity, but that's, 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 that's not going to wash, oh, unfortunately. I haven't thought about that. If only we had a large table full of lawyers in the room with us tonight, <laughs> we must uh, we'll explore that thought again. No, because not going to work, unfortunately. Um, Shannon, please help me change the subject here um, and um, ask a question not related to the deontologies of the taxation system. Um, I'd first like to say, Matt, thanks for putting on this event and David uh, tonight because it's just been absolutely fantastic and to look at that tap list on the wall there is just phenomenal. You'd never see something like that. Um, I've heard that you guys have the largest barrel program in the country. And if that is so, how many barrels is the largest barrel program in the country and how big can it get? I, uh, in the early days, and we sort of had a chat about this uh, a little bit earlier, it was all about an arms race of trying to get bigger. And I know we were, we were competing a little bit with uh, Soren Eriksson from 8Wide in New Zealand because he, on social media, was saying, I've got the, the largest barrel ageing program in the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm like, come off it. Looking at his barrel, and it was one of those things where, and you sort of go, let's get more barrels, but you go, well, who's going to buy it? And we're, we're now at a point where we're not chasing scale because I think these beers are anything but scale for the local market. Um, we're currently sitting, to answer your question, sitting at about 250, uh, which is a lot. There's probably out of that, there's probably out of that 250 barrels, there's probably 30, I'm just trying to remember, there's three rows of 12, so 36 uh, are spirits, and then the rest are beer. Um, and of those barrels, some are punchins, which are 500 litre barrels. Uh, there's a, a large oak fooder, which is about 1,250 litres, and then there's hogsheads, and 
but yeah, on about so take out the so two hundred and twenty ish, give or take, um, which is enough because I think there's a, it's a lot, yeah, and it's one of those things where barrels you sort of go, let's get more barrels, they're really cheap, and they are really cheap. The first barrels we got fifty bucks each, and they threw in the they threw in the racks, and I'm like, done, uh, and then you realise. There's more to it than just that. And you start learning about barrels. That's something that we've learned over the years. From the first ones we got, from using your nose to smell, to work out what is actually, what it is you're picking up, uh, from off notes to good flavour profiles or aroma profiles, uh, same with bourbon barrels, everything else. Um, so I think the, the idea of scale is we don't want to be the biggest necessarily, we just want to be quality. Um, uh, that's probably the, the, the key. We've got room for a couple more audience questions if people want to come up and line up out the front here and ask them. Um, but just on that note, I've, a question I've never asked anyone before. I mean, is there ever a time you get a barrel and just go, no, this isn't usable? Like, yeah. I and, 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 and how and does that barrel present? We, we bought some barrels that had come from South Australia. They'd been, and they'd arrived with a, a, a basically a, a they were wrapped in plastic, which is a, not a bad sign, as in uh, from a, a pallet wrapping scenario, but they'd grown mould underneath uh, the plastic. And I'm like, I can't... The, the chance of mould impregnating the wood and then what that can do to the beer over years, so we said no. Um, which is... And uh, it's a hard thing to say, mm. hey, take them back because they've come all the way from you know, big cost from shipping and everything else. They refunded and replaced, but then there's also other you know, variables that go with it. Uh, we're going to get a question from Shana in the room. We've probably got room for a couple more audience questions after that, so come and line up behind Shana if you've got a question, and then we're going to put a bow on things. Thank you, Damon. Uh, in Warren's absence, I've got wine questions. Um, you would... <laughs> you were talking about ageing beers before and obviously a number of beers that Boat Rocker makes are very ageable. Like, for instance, a Riesling, does it go through a dull phase? So even if you've aged it well, do you have those few years where you could crack it and it's just going to be terrible no matter what? Um, yeah, look, I, I think most of the time with beer, if it ends the dull phase, it's generally going in one direction. It's not going to come back and bounce back. Um, there are moments, though, and it depends on the, the, the word of, of dull, so some imperial stouts, without a doubt, they come out big and brash and, and lots of roast or hop or alcohol. Maybe that's their dull phase initially, and it will only improve as things start mellowing out. But I don't think things dip, have nothing there, and then come back. There's always an experience to be had. We had a, a, an, an old uh, friend of ours came along with a, a bottle of Missa, which is a, a champagne-style uh, Berlin of Ice, aged in Chardonnay barrels, 3.5%. should never be kept that long. Uh, it should be consumed relatively quickly. 3.5% um, is quite a low alcohol to keep beer. But it was fascinating seeing how it had, what it had turned into. But I would never... It, it, it definitely diminished. Um, yeah, I haven't seen a beer yet, but to be fair, I haven't had enough of them to see that they've gone through a dead phase or a lag phase to then come up and, and improve. Like never does the donut. I 
haven't so, seen one, but it, well, and also, you know, Jan, you you really what kind of donuts you're having. I feel like that people are selling you half a donut and <laughs> telling do you, you it's a donut. But do you have a beer that you want to improve, though? Is there a beer that you're tasting, going, oh, maybe it's going to get better, or is it just a? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's the, you've got to do it. I mean, I've, I've, one of the most surprising beer experiences I had was an aged bottle of, of uh, Kozel, which is like an everyday high-alcohol black uh, lager from Europe. And as an aged version, it's like, you know what? It's actually pretty good, and even though it was like three or four years old. So, I don't know, it's one of those things. It... We have a, a... I don't know your name, my friend, so introduce yourself and um, ask your question, please. So I'm Brayden and I'm currently working in hospitality. So yep. if I may, I just want to ask an industry-styled uh, question. So over winter, we do go through a lot of red wine in a European-styled restaurant. We are looking to do more beer. But say in a Greek cuisine, uh, what kind of beers um, or darker beers would you recommend? Ooh, good question. That's a really good question because you've got a lot of high char, you've got some intense character with lemon juice and the fetters. I think the Flanders Red would go well with the meats, uh, without a doubt. Um, and I'm not a chef here, so I'm, I'm trying to work out uh, flavour and food pairing. But um, I'm even I, would, I, would, I would err towards the lighter sour uh, rather than a heavier. Jet Stream's probably not... Yeah, no, arguably, but... But a Flanders red would pair really well with a whole lot of things you might be having in a Greek restaurant, for instance, like fruit from some of the preserved seafoods to, you know, uh, yeah. to, so, to the yeah, fish, fish, to the lamb. It sort of operates Some light, lighter sort of... sours would definitely work if so someone did... You did mention that the Flanders uh, red would cut through the meat, and I'm assuming that would work the same through, say, a fattier cut of lamb Absolutely, well. yep. Yep, for sure. Uh, I think anything with a degree of acid but with some malt character behind it would, would help cut through. Um, I wouldn't recommend IPAs. I don't know if that would necessarily go that well. Um, the gentleman who would know everything about this is not here tonight, but uh, Rob Kabood, who's a, a, a very top chef who knows beer and food pairing back to, back to front. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. I'll give me your name and number and I'll get in touch and... We'll start working out a, a, a beer selection for you. And Thank it's you. a fascinating thing to do. Uh, we've done it in various restaurants that I've had over the years where uh, you literally have the same beer with chips and without chips, for instance, and just see the difference that having food, a little bit of fat, a little bit of salt uh, makes to your perception of the same beer. Yep. It's um, something you can do at home with, like, you know, have the, you know, two stubbies of the same beer. It doesn't need to be a fancy one. Yep. Uh, have it and then have some salt and vinegar chips and you'll suddenly experience different things and there's like some really positive things you can get out of that as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Matt, we're going to wrap things up here in terms of a formal recording sense. Um, we've been so lucky to have you here uh, at Beer Deluxe, so grateful to the team at Beer Deluxe for this. And, um, mate, give us your socials one more time and remind us again about all of those events you've got coming up. Uh, socials, good question. Uh, Boatrocker.com.au is our, our website. At Boatrocker Brew is Instagram or something. I don't know. I've, I've, I've been banned from TikTok. social media. I'm, I'm a bit like the Roy Kent of the social media. I was just like, I, like, I get grumpy and I was like, no, I'm not going to, not going to engage. But, but 
Not that I'm that bad. Not at all. But, uh, and there's a Facebook one, but I can't remember what it's called. The Only Boat Rocker. Thank yeah. you. Because we had it... For some reason, they cancelled the first one uh, because there were too many other pages called Boat... Someone... That's, I don't know. It's one of those things that I don't understand. So I sort of step back from social media and go, I don't want to know... And, and for like our that. friends from Fiji who, during the course of this interview, I reckon have flown roughly halfway between Fiji and Melbourne, uh, where physically are you? And how so do we are in Brayside. We're a 45-minute drive uh, via taxi, Uber or train ride to the beautiful southeast, gateway to the peninsula, we call it. Um, it's not Brayside, that... the gateway to the peninsula. peninsula. It's not that pretty, but it's, uh, it's, it's a place... Uh, and it's a lovely shed. Just don't drive personally and think you can drive home because everything, apart from his pinky, starts at about five and goes up to 40, really, when you include spirits and whiskies and rums and everything else. So That sounds like an incentive rather than a disincentive to visit. Absolutely. Uh, but I take your point on driving. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, Boat Rocker, Beer Deluxe. Friends here at Beer Lux tonight, give us one last shout out and we're going to say good night from Beer Lux. Yeah. Yeah.